You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects Journal. Welcome to the first episode of Climate Champions, where we offer inspiration and share essential knowledge about design in an era of climate emergency. With my co-host, George Morgan, we're speaking to changemakers and innovators who are transforming architecture as we know it by designing in ways that respect planetary boundaries. I'm George Morgan, director of 1.5 Architecture, which is a small practice I started just over a year ago in order to work in a more sustainable way. Hattie and I met at an ACAN meeting, the Architects Climate Action Network. More about ACAN at the end of this episode. It's really depressing how much architects are the problem, like how much architects make stupid decisions based on aesthetics and an idea of a design that is in some way superior because of some really bizarre thing that then costs us loads of embodied carbon. We are delighted to welcome Maria Smith of Bureau Hapold as our first climate champion. In this episode, Maria explains why she can no longer work as an architect because of the immensity of the climate challenge. She has co-founded two practices, is a member of RIBA Council, and on the steering group of Architects Declare, but she believes that the way architects think is part of the problem. Maria recently retrained as an engineer to tackle design in a more evidence-based way, and she joined Bureau Hapold as Director of Sustainability and Physics during lockdown in May. She is vegan and an avid cyclist. So Maria, you have your finger in a lot of pies. What is top of mind for you at the moment? I do have my fingers in lots of pies. Um, I suppose my newest pie, Bureau Hapold, is probably taking the most of my brain space at the minute. Um, so I joined in the middle of May, been there three months now, all of which has been in lockdown. So quite a surreal way to start a new job. But I'm part of this amazing team, which is the Building Physics and Sustainability team. Um, and there's sort of about 50 of us um, across the UK, but then we're part of a wider global team as well. So it's an incredible technical reservoir, an amazing like motley crew of people um, with lots of different backgrounds. Engineers, yes, but also architects and consultants and people with a planning background and economists and so on. And we're all we're all working on sustainability, but from lots of different perspectives. So I suppose I'm just finding my feet here and also figuring out my place and what we can collectively do together um, to help bring about this kind of transition to a regenerative built environment. Can you tell us a little bit about your remit and your ambitions for your role? Some of the projects that I'm working on at the moment are um, a bit more strategic. So I'm working with C40 Cities. So C40 Cities is a sort of a global coalition of um, cities led by mayors. It started off as 40. I think there are 94 cities now all over the world. A key kind of principle behind that is that city administrations, they have the potential to drive climate action in a way that is complementary and perhaps a little bit more leading edge than some central government um, administrations. 
and that cities are where huge amounts of um, people live, responsible for huge amounts of emissions. And if we take a, a, a process leading um, from cities, we can make a huge contribution to reducing uh, climate uh, damage. And so we're doing a number of projects with C40 from helping with climate action plans to looking forward to the clean construction forum and declaration that are coming out later in this year. That sounds super interesting. Working at the urban scale is where a lot of the most impactful measures can be taken. I'm fascinated by the fact that you've joined an engineering practice because I've spent almost as much of my time over the last decade talking to building services engineers as I have to architects. Now, with embodied carbon finally gaining traction, structural engineers are on the front line. You often talk about transdisciplinary working as opposed to multidisciplinary. Can you explain what you mean by that? I use the term transdisciplinary as opposed to multidisciplinary because transdisciplinary means that an individual sits across different disciplines, whereas multidisciplinary is more about individuals from different disciplines working together. Both are completely valuable, but there's something a little bit more um, powerful, I think, in treading on other people's professional toes in a way that, you know, for example, if economists and ecologists weren't so siloed in their thinking, then arguably we wouldn't be in this mess in the first place, right? Um, and that's true within the built environment as well. So like the idea that an architect comes up with some genius idea and then an engineer then makes it work really, really devalues the engineer's involvement, but also you're creating a poor outcome for it. And that's especially true, I believe, when we're trying to address the climate emergency. So on the one hand, I had this quite personal interests. I love maths and spreadsheets. Um, and so I wanted to understand more about engineering just because I found it fascinating. But then also I do believe that those silos that we've been operating from are not helpful in tackling these huge issues that we have that cut across social concerns to economics, to construction, to, you know, like it involves everything. And I think that transdisciplinary individuals have a huge role to play in like sort of joining the dots in different ways and bringing about that transformation. And so I spent the last five years before joining Bureau Happold, I spent um, at Web Yates Engineers and in Terabang, where we were explicit, sort of with that explicit goal of trying to create a team that sat across architecture and structural and building services engineering. And now at Bureau Happold, I'm, we're taking a, quite a similar approach, but it's much more focused around sustainability. So I think it's a lot more fun. You know, it's a, <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's a powerful place, but it's just it's really interesting. Um, but you have to be yeah, like really agile and be comfortable with constantly learning. Yeah. <laughs> Every project that I've seen that's pushing boundaries had collaboration from day one. You know, you can't just have one discipline and then bring in the others later. So I, I think that's very exciting. George. Well, yeah, you talked about how architects can kind of feel that they've designed something and then it's the engineer's role to make something work. But if you're trying to work uh, in a more sustainable way, both in terms of the energy and use of a building or the energy uh, embodied in a building, that isn't really going to work that successfully. Um, and you need to you need to engage more and work collaboratively, as, as you were saying. So how, how do you think architects could do that in a in a better way? 
mean, I think architects need to upskill quite a lot in general. Like, no, like a lot of architects are super nerdy about engineering and they're absolutely brilliant, but also a lot, a lot aren't. So I think that there are a bunch of us, and obviously I maybe took this to a bit of an extreme trying to go and get an engineering degree. But, like, but, but this came from like, I don't know enough about this. And I feel at the moment that there are loads of things that I don't know enough about. Um, and so I'm trying to understand more, you know, deeply kind of building physics and retrofit and, um, you know, moisture control in um, dealing with kind of old buildings, for example, you know, like this, there are so many things. And, and, and like I said, I think that that does exist within architectural culture, this like desire to understand the details of loads and loads of different things. We're generally generalists. Um, so I think nurture that aspect of our kind of collective personality um, um, in order to tackle these issues. But I think that there are also problems with the stereotypical relationship between architects and engineers and the roles and the scopes and so on. So we have to rethink some of those. You know, for example, the point at which a structural engineer might get involved in a project is probably too late quite often. Like a lot of decisions are being made around feasibilities and so on um, before a structural engineer gets involved. And that might mean that the, you know, existing building fabric isn't being used to its maximum, for example, or that a demolition audit hasn't actually been carried out until decision has already been made to scrap an existing building or to refurbish it in a different way that's got nothing to do with the structural capacity of the existing fabric. And so, you know, there's so many different ways that engineers have a, a much more strategic offering than they're often being allowed to contribute because they're being brought into the project and to the decision making quite late. So it's, I guess both parties have to move. Right? En engineers maybe need to move a little bit more towards architects sort of ways of thinking in terms of things like being really propositional and not just thinking of things as a solution, but like questioning everything. Um, in a way that architects could be really, really annoying, right? It's just like, oh, but we throw the brief out. And, say, <laughs> but, and that can be super annoying, but it, that's also brilliant and what helps us to um, move things forward. And then at the same time, architects need to not not do that thing of like, oh, well, the engineer will worry about that. So I'll just, you know, that they'll just make that work later. And I'm not going to worry about the details of that until mm. way later when actually... It might be too late. Mm -hmm. It might like you've be got too a form though, yeah. that's like got way too much heat loss area or if you haven't upskilled to know it yourself and then or at least engage somebody who does know it early on enough in, in, in the process that yeah and I've got to be honest like I've, from seeing it more from the engineer's perspective as well like it, it's really depressing how much architects are the problem like how much architects make stupid decisions based on aesthetics and um, and an idea of a design that is in some way superior because of some really bizarre thing that then costs us loads of embodied carbon. And it's, it's, it's like it's easy in places like ACAN or Architects Declare or, you know, like in, in bubbles where we're talking to architects that we feel like, oh, yeah, we all really care about the environment. So we're all trying to make these decisions. We're trying to like promote timber and all, all these kind of things. But then when you see like a, a lot of you forget that like lots of architects are still making really like 19th century decisions um so, sorry sorry architects i'm not very i'm not very loyal <laughs> there is a huge catch-up game there i i totally yeah. agree with you 
you know, and, and I spend my life talking to people in this bubble. And every time I get out of the bubble, I, I, I am reminded, you know, how far we have to go. Earlier in my career, especially at Studio Weave, I was really obsessed with the kind of rules around how we can justify a certain design decision and how limited they were and how that, you know, you can't make a good design decision based on kind of whimsy, for example, that there needs to be sort of really strict rules about something to do with proportion or something to do with like line and specific kind of materials and massing and things like that, that felt really, really, um, I felt really trapped by that. And so Studio Weave was a kind of reaction and expression kind of against that kind of thing. But I think part of the, part of the reason that architecture as a whole is sometimes struggling to take on sort of sustainability and regenerative design more wholeheartedly is because we ended up like in this little box about the kind of things that constitute good design it was really really limited and so those things are now fighting against making sound environmental decisions in a way that's problematic so we've got to I think still let go of some of that baggage that's a kind of modernism and postmodernism, neoclassicism and like, like some of those things like that all of that wrestling that was happening in the second half of the 20th century and early 21st century that we were really all obsessed with um is still i think those i think those design ethics are still causing us problems um and that's part of the reason that architects sometimes a lot of the time they're still making really weird sustainability decisions well one way to tackle this is curriculum reform and I'd like to backtrack for a moment and ask you a little bit about your part one at Bath. And as you may know, ACAN is actively spearheading mm -hmm. a climate curriculum campaign to overhaul the way architecture is taught. But I wanted to know at Bath, you know, people always talk about Bath with the legacy of Ted Happold, um, cited as one of the schools that's leading the way. Do you feel that the seeds of meaningful environmental design teaching were part of your course back then? Or was it all about form and what things looked like? So I was at Bath sort of, what, 2000 till 2003, that sort of time, I can't, 2001, 2003, something like that. Um, so, and I, I, I haven't been involved with the course there since then. So I can't speak for it now, I can only, Sort of reflect on the time that I was there. No, but then what? I, ba back um, then, yeah. The I mean, one the things the thing that really attracted me was that the first year was taught with the structural engineers, or the engineers and the architects together. So we did loads of maths and we did loads of um, you know we did bending moment diagrams and it was all really empowering for me. <laughs> um, and also that it had the. Erasmus program that you can't do in a lot of architecture schools or you couldn't at the time anyway um right and so it had that broader perspective both in terms of engineering and the international connections um right there was there was a thread of environmental design there for sure but there was also like really strong minimalism agenda going on my first year projects were all like concrete rectangles, which, you know, I obviously didn't follow through that kind of, um, that kind of aesthetic in the end, but like that, that was what was, that's what got you good marks in first year. So 
I don't I I don't think of my time there as being like the seeds of my environmental design career, to be honest. I think it was it was a good like broad grounding in some ways, but yeah. So when would you <laughs> say that these issues kind of rose to the top of your radar and professional agenda? I was I was first aware of that stuff at Bath for sure, but it didn't bubble up to the top of my agenda until maybe around 2016, 17, something like that, probably when I had started to get much more deeply into the engineering side of things and became really interested in economics and the relationship between economics and sustainability. And the then that kind of led to pitching for the Oslo Architecture Triennale with this degrowth theme. It's interesting still to me, you know, but... <laughs> But like to think about like how do, how did I go from Studio Weave to what I'm doing now seems like such a weird journey. But I think there is there is a thread that connects connects these things, and it's I was mentioning a little bit around you know what justifies a good design, what makes a good design, what is a um, what's a good design decision, and what are these other weird kind of justification methods yeah. that we use. But it's I think for like many of us like. You know, we, we learned about the global warming greenhouse effect at school kind of thing. And then it's just gradually, gradually, gradually become a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger concern until it's, you, you can't possibly do anything else. And I've basically, in, you know, in some ways, I'm, I'm not an architect anymore. I can't be an architect at the moment because there's this other thing that I, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't carry on doing that normal job, that the kind of the typical architecture role, because... I really, there's just bigger stuff at hand that, that I've got to dedicate the next however long to. Wow, so that's that's quite um, <laughs> sorry, that's, yeah, that's quite a, a kind of a, a kind of powerful thing. A kind of uh, the, the sort of change of of kind of focus. I had a, I had a boiling frog situation. Um. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I, there's there's kind of points in your uh, in your sort of trajectory, I guess, that you can plot towards this kind of momentous uh, decision. Do you think? Yeah, I think about the ecology of colour um, as being a key project in this journey, which was a Studio Weave project that we completed in maybe 2013 or something like that. Um, and it's, it's a hand-painted, entirely timber outdoor classroom shared between several schools in Dartford. And it's all like kind of natural dyes. And it's on this ecology island um, where we were trying to also create an ecology garden of these different plants that would yield natural dyes. That was... A kind of key moment of a shift in thinking for me. In Terabang, um, the big focus was around refurbishment. So the Hoover building that you mentioned, but also um, the, the Art Deco cinema in Dalston. And one of the reasons that we focused on retrofit in Terabang was because I think that's a really key area where you can, uh, you can sort of easily demonstrate the benefits of architecture and engineering working very closely together and I mean like the disciplines working close together rather than necessarily individuals from those disciplines working close together because like the super tight coordination that we needed between the timber frame and the kitchen layouts on Hoover was just like you know to, it was literally it was 66 completely unique kitchens so much timber in there in order to create that structure out of timber rather than kind of met second steel and things like that you know 
so to have all of the bracing hidden in the walls and so on um, and to coordinate that with all of the openings and all of the different column and the existing building and it um, was such a such a tight coordination exercise that didn't see the distances to clean differences between disciplines you know to have that as that traditional way of like architect does some layouts then they send it to the structural engineer and then they stick some columns in and then they send it like that just wouldn't have worked and so that was probably another a staging post yeah um, and then i mean the big staging post for me was the oslo architecture triennale so that's that's when it all went wrong <laughs> i wanted to ask you about the oslo triennale and all the thinking you've done about degrowth and changing the parameters of the way we think about the economy and the way we consume and how does that look to you now through the lens of the pandemic where do you think we are so the, the premise of degrowth economic degrowth this is is that we cannot continue to infinitely grow our economies on a finite planet that growing the economy brings with it a growth in extraction of raw materials, a growth in emissions, a growth in um, all kinds of like environmental damage indicators. And this idea that we can decouple economic growth from those negative impacts has no basis in science um, as yet without some kind of insane breakthrough technology and so degrowth is like recognizing that and then saying okay well in that case if we can't keep pursuing endless growth of the economy then we need other factors to organize our society around but the problem is that there are so many dependencies on economic growth like to manage public and private debt and to avoid having to actually deal with inequality because we just keep perpetuating this idea that um, a rising tide lifts all boats, even though we know that equality is nowhere near sort of where it needs to be and is not improving and all of that. So, and then we had like over a hundred contributors from all over the world contributing to that conversation. So that was nearly a year ago now that we, we put that on. And since then we've seen a global pandemic. So obviously like we've been thinking like the other the other co-curators, so Matthew Diel and Cecilia Sexholson and Finn Harper, who I curated it with, um, and we you know all thinking about talking about like, oh, you know, how can we think about this through this new lens? One thing that I think is really important about that is that we have to recognise that the pandemic is one of the terrifying faces of the ecological crisis that we're facing. Um, that this is not a competing interest for climate change, climate action, that this is a symptom of these broader problems. And that it's, you know, it's unsustainable land use and human activities that have put pressure on ecosystems that create the conditions to enable um, the kind of the pathogens jumping from species to species um, that, that create this situation. So that tells us that we have to look instead to movements like degrowth, to think about alternative ways of organising our society, alternative ways of ensuring that the scarce resources that we do have are like distributed amongst humans in an equitable way, rather than just sort of trying to disaster capitalism, grow our way out of this problem, because all we're doing is perpetuating it. Uh, I had a question, uh, I guess, another sort of staging post one. 
I, I like this staging post idea of my career. <laughs> I wonder where it's going to go next, what the next kind of, <laughs> kind of point on the graph would be. Um, <laughs> yeah, agree. Yeah, your Ilford Market project, you've talked about using circular economy principles in that, so it could be relocated re yeah, yeah, to um, future meanwhile sites and there's things like Gabion foundations rather than kind of concrete ones. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. could, you, could you talk a bit more about how designing for a circular economy works? What should, what should architect, how should architects approach it? The, Ilf the Ilford Market project, the circular economy principles was part of the brief. Um, and it came from the client in the first instance. And the site that they had was only going to be a lease for five years. Um, we wanted to design something that could be completely kind of demountable, leave no trace on the site, and then be completely reusable. So there wouldn't be a huge amount of waste involved. And that you're, you're creating an asset that can continue to be circulated at that kind of in that high value state rather than being, it doesn't have to, to be reused, it doesn't have to be downcycled basically. So we created a timber frame that is designed to be dismounted, demounted, sorry, and then also avoiding below ground foundations by using hardwood timber skis that spread the load and then gabion ballast to prevent it blowing away. Yeah, that's sort of, that's still going ahead, I believe. I've obviously moved on to Beerhapel now, so I'm not directly involved with that project anymore. But it's it's funded by the GLA, um, who are also really pushing circular economy principles. And I'm involved with the GLA through my sort of work as a mayor's design advocate as well, and in the Ecological Urbanism Sounding Board, which we used to be called the Circular Economy Sounding Board. So that's something that's very close to my heart. But I, I guess I want to say that a stronger interpretation of designing circular economy principles is to design stuff from non-virgin materials, design stuff from stuff that already exists. It's about reconfiguring existing resources rather than designing something and then finding the resources in order to enable that design. We should be starting with the stuff that we have, you know, it's the demolition audit or whatever you've got in the reclamation yard or whatever, and then reconfiguring that into something that can meet the kind of client's brief, the client's needs as closely as possible, probably with some compromises, but that's okay because we don't have all the resources in the world. So, you know, I think the Ilford market is, is a really good step, but I think there's, there's further that I want to take that. And there's obviously work being done, you know, there's like Lendiger Group in, um, in Copenhagen that have done some really good reclamation work and so on and there's rota and there's you know, there's loads of people duncan baker brown has written that amazing reuse atlas book and so there's much stronger there's a lot of really strong stuff out there but it's not mainstream yet and we need to we need to sort out the logistics of this in the industry as a whole in order to enable us to work like that and to think like that and i guess how you get things approved if what are the particular qualities of a material that you find it's not it doesn't come with a kind of information from the manufacturer necessarily that how, how do you know what its kind of properties are? Yeah, so we're going to have to have that more like ready, steady, cook attitude, right? <laughs> so it's like we've got to work with what we have. And so if we test the beam strength of this beam and this is what it is, then we need to design something that's going to work around that restraint, right? not just chuck that away and just buy a new beam then. I mean, that's just like one small example. But um, but yeah, it changes planning as well. It's like, okay, well, if you're going to make this out of reclaimed materials and you're not going to know exactly what it's going to look like until you get there, you know, we have to be a bit more 
open about that and it's going to change the aesthetics of the urban realm but i reckon probably for the better we make things really interesting and quirky and wonderful cool <laughs> so we've touched on retrofit we've touched on using what we've got circular economy what about regenerative design mm -hmm. where do you see the most viable pathways forward that can have an immediate impact and you know they're not mainstream yet but you know we need examples that people can see and over the next decade you know things begin to change i mean should we be building everything out of timber or are there other approaches out there i mean till timber is not a silver bullet Tim timber is a really important part of the solution, absolutely. But it's not like that solves all of our problems. You know, there's, in terms of regeneratives, there's the all of the living building challenge projects, I suppose, that are leading the way in, in so many ways. But that it's you need a certain kind of site and client and brief and everything to achieve one of those, one of those projects that, well, mostly they're like one by one. It's not a system systematic change to the industry, yeah? Yeah, they're one-offs. It's just, as with the circular economy stuff, like there, there are sort of systemic logistical changes that we need to make to the industry in order to enable the industry as a whole to be regenerative. And I guess that's one of the reasons that I'm that I sort of wanted to move to to a place like Bureau Happold where I could get involved with the more strategic stuff, like working with cities and working with like portfolio holders and. Um, because you've got to think at that scale. You, mm -hmm. There's only so much that you can do on a project by project basis um, at that scale. It's the it's policy and city scaled interventions mm -hmm. that are going to make the the kind of the, the difference to enable all projects to be regenerative. So at this at this kind of policy scale, there's a, there's a really large number of certification frameworks and, and guidance and uh, for like well-being and sustainability. And sometimes the content can seem a little bit spurious, like mm -hmm. like the Living Building Challenge. Mostly it's great, but there's, there's things in there like emphasising people growing their own food, which is a, a great hobby, but it's pretty marginal in terms of its impact on kind of food supply or, or energy. And then there's things like the well-building standard, which reckons that a picture of a plant in the stairway gives you like access to nature so yeah there's, there's some kind of great things in there but there's a kind of a bit of hmm, not so sure kind of elements um, so what are your what are your tips for kind of navigating the kind of all this world of kind of policy and uh, certification frameworks do you think we should have like a just mostly just focus on on carbon as the kind of main priority or uh, we definitely shouldn't only focus on carbon we have to focus on everything all at once and kind of push forward on all fronts I guess I guess it's like looking at that thing of like okay what can I do it's like well I don't know what you can do what's your agency what's your power what you know like every individual and every project can probably do something different and um, and probably can do more and if maybe there's one project where enabling all of the residents to grow all of their own food could be hugely impactful and then another project where having a, a picture of a carrot is not really you know worthwhile so i think it's it's a question of looking at every situation in every context to discover like well, okay where can we push hardest and where can we be most impactful in this like whole myriad of different because there's yeah okay there's carbon but then there are all the other greenhouse gas gases but then there are that you know i think we need to start measuring our material footprint per square meter of building built as well like because it's it's not it's not like oh so long as it's zero carbon it's fine we've still got a huge 
extraction and habitat loss problem that is being perpetuated by the amount that we're building and so on. So it's hard, isn't it? Because this is so much. But I think there are there are definitely areas where it's more worthwhile for each individual project. And that and that varies. And I suppose that's why we have to all keep talking to each other and collaborating in different ways and having that kind of multidisciplinary, transdisciplinary, motley crew of different people that bring different kinds of expertise and different perspectives to every project so that we can push hardest where it's most impactful in, in each of those situations. So what would be your advice to a small to medium sized practice? You know the ethos well and the culture well of small to medium sized practices who are just trying to get to grips with sustainability or say embodied carbon calculations. I mean, where do you, where do you start on this journey? What would your advice be? Um, join up to the ACAN, the Architects Climate Action Network, join up to Architects Declare, look up the RBA 2030 challenge, look at all of the stuff that like Architecture 2030 in the States is doing. Like there's so much stuff out there about the way that the built environment is responding to this climate crisis. There's lots of stuff being shared um, like do courses at the AECB on retrofit, like, like a lot of the stuff that the UK GBC is putting out, that the world GBC, like look at what, the, there's so much stuff out there. And I also, I, I find that a lot of the people who care about this stuff are also really happy to share and to chat and it's not horribly competitive. It's, it is really like, it's, it's good people working in this area. Yeah, it's a friendly place, I think. That's very true. Yes. Well, I have a question on a, on a different tangent, Maria. So another aspect of your creative persona is your incredible fashion sense. Oh, really? <laughs> and I, I was just wondering what, what your inspiration is. Um, <laughs> I honestly am so surprised by this question. That's really bizarre. Um, I, I tend to get really attached to my clothes, so I keep them for a really, really long time and I get and then I um they get holy or something, but then I get attached to them in that state as well. <laughs> I always put really random things together. But I don't know. I don't I don't think about it that much. Well well, you've co-founded two practices and been your own boss for years and you have a very clear vision of how the built environment needs to evolve expressed through turncoats, expressed at the Oslo Triennale. And you've also opted to work within mainstream constructs, such as the RIBA Council and now Bureau Happold. So I see you as a gorilla in the bureaucracy, which I think is a, is, is a positive thing. I think you've explained, you know, you what's motivating you now is to work at a larger scale and see what see what's possible. Is that a fair assessment? It's a big shift. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it, it is a big shift, but in the same way that working in a small practice in part in this industry that is largely kind of quite conservative, with mostly a small city, sometimes a big one, it's not like working within architecture, you're ever really like a, a lone kind of actor. You're still, it's still very much a team sport and it's it's really complicated and there's loads of stakeholders and so it's not really that different in some ways working in a larger practice and working in a smaller practice so my my last question was part of 
what architecture can do is provide a vision for the future, uh, like with constructivism or modernism or sort of sci-fi utopias. To you, what what does the future look like? Does it have a look? So I think, firstly, I think we can learn a lot from sci-fi. Um, I've recently become quite obsessed with Octavia Butler. This is like feminist sci-fi. It's absolutely brilliant. So do have a look at that, a read of that. But vision for the future. So I sometimes like to think that architects could be spatial therapists. So we solve problems spatially, right? And this move from a very extractivist industry that's about creating a genius idea and then bringing together the resources in order to realise that needs to shift, as we've talked about, from to more like something where you're reconfiguring existing resources. And so if you then think about, okay, I need to solve a problem by moving around some existing resources and reconfiguring them. And then that is that a kind of spatial therapy in some way for humans and non-humans alike? Is that a vision of the future? <laughs> I mean, it's gonna, it's gonna, it would have an aesthetic associated with it because it is about that constant reconfiguration of existing stuff rather than shiny new things. So it's gonna have a certain, it's gonna have a certain aesthetic to it. You know, that I think, people more eloquent in art history than I could talk about. But if you think about like Goldsmithworthy, for example, it's not like creating anything, it's just rearranging stuff and making it really beautiful by doing that. So could we be more like that? To conclude this episode, we have a mini interview with Sarah Edmonds of ACAN the Architects Climate Action Network. So, Sarah, what is ACAN? ACAN was started about a year ago and is a network of individuals within architecture and related built environment professions, taking action to address the twin crises of climate and ecological breakdown. A main aim has been to mobilise a movement by building this open and supportive network. And we recognise that there are a number of brilliant environmental architecture groups out there doing critical work, but felt a broader movement was lacking that could agitate for wider reaching systemic change. So what are your current campaigns and work streams at ACAN? Well, the activity structure of ACAN is that we've got eight thematic groups. These are circular economy, education, embodied carbon, existing buildings, carbon literacy, planning policy, professional standards and where the wild things aren't. There are a number of live campaigns that these groups are running. The education group is currently running a climate curriculum campaign in response to the knowledge gap in current architectural education. The Embodied Carbon group are working on a campaign that seeks to get embodied carbon of materials into the building regulations and planning policy. Our planning policy group has launched a campaign in response to the permitted development rights changes and wider planning reforms. A number of ACAN members are also actively volunteering in the drafting of a retrofit design guide. And then really excitingly, we're also currently developing the replication of ACAN internationally. Fantastic. So how can people get involved? Okay, well, you can follow us on social media. Um, you can take a look at um, the website, join our mailing list, come along to our meetings. Information about our meetings is sent out in our mailing list, so we post stuff on Instagram and Twitter. Um, you can join a thematic group or a working group. You can become a coordinator. You know, the beauty of an agile and flexible network like ACAN means that you can be as involved as you wish 
or as life allows. Thanks, Sarah. So, please check out ACAN at ArchitectCAN on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Join us in a fortnight for the next episode of Climate Champions, where our guest will be Annalie Ritchies of Mikhail Ritchies, talking about what her practice has learned from its Sterling Prize-winning Goldsmith Street and their current journey towards making all future projects zero carbon. You can find out more about both Maria Smith and ACAN on the Climate Champions webpage at architectsjournal.co.uk, where you can also send comments and subscribe. Thanks for listening.